listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Lauren Fultenberg, and I'm Melissa Hurst. For the past several weeks, people in every corner of the country have been carefully following the case of 22-year-old Gabby Petito, who was murdered while traveling the country by van with her boyfriend, Brian Laundrie. Ever since Petito's parents first reported her missing, the case has run wild on social media, where amateur detectives have picked apart every last detail of the young woman's final days, and even have contributed legitimate leads to the investigation. But all that social media attention isn't necessarily a good thing, and it raises a number of questions. Whose lives are deemed important enough for the masses to care about? How does intense media scrutiny impact a case and the family behind it? And what are the larger implications of social media sleuthing? Jeff Lynn, Associate Professor of Criminology in the University of Denver's College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, joined us to dive in. So over the last couple of weeks, the country has been watching this story of Gabby Petito um, and her murder unfold, especially via social media platforms like TikTok. Um, Is this move away from mainstream media something that you think is new or happening more? I think it, uh, I don't, I guess I don't know what new is anymore, right? So is new like this year, then no, is new in the last 10 years, then yes. Um, So yeah, in the scale of history, it's extremely new. And in the scale of communications and media, it's extremely new um, to the point where um, we don't fully understand the dynamics of social media and crime and public opinion because not enough time has passed to really fully get it. And it evolves so quickly, right? Two years ago, if you said TikTok to me, I wouldn't, you know, I would think of like a clockmaker or something like that. And now I know what it is. I don't use it, but, um, you know, I mean, in two years from now, three years from now, there's going to be some other platform or app that, you know, and we'll look at TikTok like MySpace. I'm curious how you've noticed the dynamic shift as somebody who watches how this is covered in the media. How is the media responding to this new pressure of social media? Oh, that's a really good question. So, um, yeah, so I think this gets us to the Gabby Petito case a bit in that. So for, you know, in media studies and criminology for a long time, we've Um, we focused on kind of ideal typical crime, we might call them, crimes that reach high levels of public and media attention. Um, I think the the roles in these stories are static over time, and they have been for for centuries, honestly. And the roles are these. There is a um, predatory villain, there is an innocent victim, and there are heroes. Um, And you know, these stories that really hit the top of the news cycle, like the Petito case and others in the past that parallel it are similar, um, have characters that fall cleanly in these roles, right? So Brian Laundrie is very cleanly into the predatory. He's on the run. He, you know, we suspect very strongly he has something to do with this, right? We want to talk to him. Everyone's looking for him, right? So he falls very cleanly into that role. Gabby falls very cleanly into the innocent victim role. She's this pretty young blonde woman who lives a van life. Um, uh, A lot of viewers can sympathize or empathize with her life. That's another theme we'll get to. And then there's heroes, which are often um, police officers or law enforcement, but what social media allows is for all of us to be heroes, right? So like now, if you're like a TikTok sleuther and you have their van on your footage or you saw them or you have evidence and you can now share it with thousands or millions of uh, followers, 
um, you are a hero. And so that's like kind of a lot of what we desire, I think, because these crimes make us feel helpless. And so when we feel like we can do something, right? This is also a fantasy we have, you know, that in these police shows and stuff, that we are the brilliant detective, that we are smarter than the, the villain. And so it allows us to live a certain fantasy as well. You sort of started talking about these high-profile cases and these high-profile crimes that have really captured the attention of the media. And JonBenet Ramsey's another, Nicole Brown Simpson's another. So how does this attention look different on social media than it did you know, back when there was four channels and everybody was reading the same thing every day? That's a great question. I don't know if I have a full answer to this. That's a really, really good question. Um, so, I mean, obviously the speed of the news cycle is different. And so, you know, if there was a break in the case in 1990, you wouldn't necessarily hear about it for a day or two or three days or, or whenever the police decided to tell us, right? And so they have control over that information. Now, media and law enforcement don't have control over all that information and we can create these very powerful counter-narratives or sub-narratives on the outside. And so I think that's the real difference is like people had no power to launch counter-narratives, sub-narratives, to criticize law enforcement at that time. I mean, part of this story is also what we call in media studies the faulty criminal justice frame, which is the police um, don't do enough or they're not trained enough or they need outside help, right? And this is the whole thing about like, you know, there's just this body cam footage released and everyone is scouring that and looking at her face and looking at the scratches on his face and saying, why didn't the police detain them? They had them, right? This is like... You know, this also happened with Polly Class in um, 1996, which led to our three strikes laws like, you know, Richard Allen Davis was stopped by the police and they let him go. Right. And so there's this like um, reinforcement of the idea that the police need more help or they're not good enough or they they are bumbling. It's kind of a Keystone Cops construction. That is a very prevailing construction. And I mean, it leads to two things. It leads to the notion that we need to protect ourselves, which leads to all kinds of things like firearm policy and, and self-protection, but also that um, police need to bend the rules sometimes too. And so that's another thing we see in police procedurals, which is the hero often bends the rules to seek justice, right? Or goes around the rules to seek justice. They rough up a suspect. They, you know, move evidence around in a certain way. They, you know, they do, they follow somebody they're not allowed to follow because the, the judge can't get the warrant signed in time, right? And it's the same construction that the, the criminal justice system is faulty, that it can't do enough to protect us. Now that also speaks to how much we expect our criminal justice system to protect us, which is it cannot fully protect you. Right? Um, and yet we, like, anytime something happens, like with Gabby, we say, like, we fault the police very quickly right. for their actions. Um, and we also want to think about the other side of that, like, because at the same time that the Gabby and the Gabby Petito case is happening, we're also seeing a lot of instances of black people being mistreated by the police. And so, you know, also by saying, like, the police should be detaining, the police should be behaving in an extremely surveillance and control-oriented way, I want us to apply that same framework to black motorists, right? So now, are you calling for more black motorists to be detained when they have a certain expression on their face, when someone in their car seems to be alarmed or in distress? So we, uh, we think of these constructions with regard to the one case, like Gabby, but then if you pull out and think of all the cases in which this is gonna be operant, you know, it's what we call net widening at that point. You know, you can find examples throughout the criminal justice system of laws based on a small or singular number of cases that affect a much larger number of cases in ways that are unseen because those cases aren't in the news. 
So we've seen some positive outcomes of having social media so involved, and it sounds like some tips may have led to actual breaks mm-hmm. in the case from social media. Um, how can social media maybe positively impact a case? I mean, I think in that way, sure. Like in this particular case, like there have been actual evidentiary breaks, the van in the video, the the body cam footage. I mean, in terms of the power of information, I think there there's never been anything like it where you can crowdsource across millions and millions of people and you just aggregate this information. You think about that compared to what a singular police department could do and it's not you know, it's not even close. So, you know, this is just the reality. Now, what you're also creating is a lot more noise. These are not professional investigators, right? The police are trained in this. That's why they do it. You know, the other effect is it puts pressure on on law enforcement. Like, think about the police department investigating Gabby Petito's disappearance. Like, everything they do is under a microscope. And so, like, you know, if you're you know, average police officer in Wyoming investigating right this, you didn't know you'd be a public figure two weeks ago. You didn't know that someone in New York would know your name. And so now you're doing your work with the whole world watching you. Would you I'm not a police officer. I can't say whether I want that, but I'm guessing no. I know with social media, we have, we have the capability to edit almost everything. We have the capability to fake who we are. So, so what is that? What are some of the detriments that, that could come up, especially as a police force, you know, doesn't have a million people to run through and verify every single thing that comes through. I mean, I think that's what it is that like when like you can create any narrative you want, like, you know, me, I have like no film editing skills and I could, you know, I've like edited YouTube videos together on my Mac. Mm -hmm. Like I can do that. If I can do that, anyone can do that, you know? So you can create any narrative you want with the, the information or footage you have and I think, you know, given what we're talking about, that that police department will have to reckon with that information if a lot of people are paying attention to it. So you create some kind of provocative narrative on, on your social media, and maybe it even hit, starts to hit the mainstream media, right? Um, and, and it just gives you no time, right? So like anything that breaks, anything that changes, the whole world is evaluating that in real time with you, as opposed to you just having the professional space to evaluate what needs to be evaluated, to um, you know, allow for due process because that's the other thing. We're just a race. This man has not been arrested. This man has not been tried. We don't know. Any, you know, there's no definitive evidence that this person has committed a crime. Okay. Now there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. You know, I mean, it's like you know, we're getting to kind of OJ level stuff here. Um, but like, there's no charge. There's no arraignment. There's no filing yet. So I'm curious also as somebody who has studied how these crimes have played out in the media, not just social media, but the media, how does this affect the families? What does it look like for the families when there is this intense scrutiny? Man, I don't know. I mean, it can't be good. I mean, every time stuff like this happens, like, you know, I have a kid um, and like, you know, I just, that's what I think of. But I think each family is affected differently, right? The victim's family might welcome it more because they're trying to solve this sure. and re- and get closure, right? And, and again, like, I... I don't even want to pretend to put myself in their position. It's impossible to think about. Um, and, and, and it's also impossible to think about Brian Laundrie's family and what they're feeling and going through as well as their child is villainized. Um, and, uh, you know, and as someone who works with a lot of people who are incarcerated as well, right? Like, you know, I've, I know I work inside of a prison. And um, I know a lot of people in that prison who've done things that they aren't proud of, and they, for years and years, have reckoned with how that has affected their family. 
I think we've weighed a lot of points here with social media and the media in general and, and the role that they play in the case or cases like Gabby's. Um, do you have an estimation of whether you think social media is, is a helper or something that hurts here? Is it good or is it bad or is it just much more complicated? I think it's really complicated. I mean, if I had to, if you forced me to pick, like twisted my arm and forced me to pick, I'd probably say bad, you know, for all the reasons we kind of went through yeah. already. Obviously, there are kind of potential benefits to it as well. But I, I just think... Um, in terms of the investigation, yes, more evidence can be yielded, but it also creates a different dynamic with the law enforcement agency that could be harmful, right? And then I think in terms of cultural climate and discourse, I think it's very harmful because of the reasons we said, because we're presuming guilt, because a lot of people are assuming they have investigative abilities that they don't have, because as you, as you said, you can um, uh, mess with all of the evidence and create a false narrative, right? And so, you know, at least with the police, I mean, we have, the police are complicated too, but they are professionally mandated to conduct this part of our governmental function. So from the law enforcement point of view, it's probably pretty negative. You know, for, the, for Gabby's family, it's probably good because, you know, you, you suddenly have a million quasi-police officers working for you. And if you're her family, you just want information. You just want to know what happened. You want closure, right? For Brian Laundrie's family, this is probably awful, right? So it depends on your perspective. For society, I would say this is bad, right? I mean, I mean, I think this whole like immediate crowdsourcing and like venge vengeance response that social media kind of creates and that, that's around everything. So we've kind of drawn some parallels already between this case and others, but um, are there other cases that you would draw parallels to here and what can we learn from drawing those parallels? Yeah, so I mean, I think the obvious one is one that is being talked about somewhat in the media, which is the fact that Gabby is young and pretty and white and middle class or upper middle class. Like, um, and so, you know, that's, that's nothing new, right? I think Gwen Ifill um, coined the phrase missing white woman syndrome in like 2002 or 2003, right? And there are articles from that time that used that that phrasing and even before that um, we you know we understood that this was a thing right in death penalty research one of the the most powerful predictors of the death penalty is whether the victim was white right and especially if whether the victim was a young white woman or a white woman so you know we I don't think we have to go too deep into the reasons that white women are like have a certain value in our society a certain optical and social value in our society that's like that's a long conversation um, but they do. Um, and there are different reasons for that. It's not just that we're all a bunch of racists, but um, it, it, it's also institutional. So I really think about the institutional aspect of it. So um, number one, uh, the, most of the people who run newsrooms are, are white and middle class or upper middle class. That's just, that's the way it is. And so you know, whatever their implicit biases are, whatever their kind of identification patterns are, where they say like that person seems sympathetic and you don't exactly know why or you're not saying why, but it's because that person resembles you or your daughter or your sister or someone you know, right? Or people in your community, you know this, but you know Gabby, right? That's the whole thing. Um, and then that's true, of course, of the audience as well, right? The, the news watching and reading audience is disproportionately white and middle class as well. And so who are you sympathizing with, right? And you don't have to think that hard about this, right? If you, you know, when you hear about a disaster in Haiti, when you hear about a disaster in Saudi Arabia, when you hear about a disaster in Indonesia, does that generate anywhere near as much sympathy as this one missing girl in Wyoming, right? And, and again, this doesn't mean we're evil. It just means that 
we do have a kind of innate affinity for those that we see similarities to. And there are certain people that are making these decisions about newsworthiness. And now, back to our other conversation, we have the collective making decisions about newsworthiness on social media as well. So to the extent that that is disproportionately informed by white middle class voices, it's not a surprise that Gabby also rises in kind of on both sides in the mainstream and social media, right? Um, and, And that's... And then, you know, just our whole cultural history of race. And, you know, what does blackness mean in America? What does Asianness mean in America? What does being Latinx mean in America? And what does it mean in terms of how much your um, life is valued and the tolerance for your various behaviors and the tolerance for and the view of how much pain and suffering you can experience? So, you know, if you see that among professionals then why wouldn't all society hold this kind of, you know, or replicate this kind of bias to some extent? And, you know, I look around and I don't think it's that hard to see. And one of the things that I've been noticing on my own social media is is people bringing up these people who are missing. There's so many missing and murdered indigenous women. Oh, yeah, the 710 missing in the last decade in Wyoming. I showed my class that article the other day. And uh, Jelani Day is a, a black student who went missing. They actually just identified his body. Um, but he's been missing for a while, and his family was like, hey, pay attention to this. So you have a black, a young black man, college student, and we, know, we don't know his name. And when you filter that through news agencies and social media, you see what gets the clicks, right? I think if you posted about a young missing black man, like those institutions would see they're not getting as much viewership around that, right? So this is like, it's... You know, what we don't want to do is say, like, newsrooms are racist, right? right? Like, what we want to say is, like, we all have racialized tendencies. Our society has racialized tendencies, and newsrooms reflect that. Don't hate the player, hate the game. So do you uh, do you have any thoughts on how social media might be able to be harnessed to be an effective tool in missing person cases that we don't necessarily pay attention to in the mainstream media? I mean, I guess I can imagine, I don't have expertise, but I can imagine something where maybe if law enforcement agencies or investigative agencies had somewhat more control over, like, the actual pieces they were looking for. And and, and they do that, right? So, you know, you do get the, like, posters and notices that are saying, like, we're looking for this license plate, we're looking for this car of this description, we're looking for this person that, you know, have you seen this grainy, like, you know, video surveillance shot, have you seen this per right? And so they, are, they do help ask for our help in that way. But I think like what's happened with this case and others is it just has totally spun out of their hands and they don't control it anymore, right? So that now they have to reckon with all this evidence and deal with all this evidence that, you know, may or may not be useful, but there's public pressure coming with it, right? So if maybe if, but I also am reluctant to say like police agencies should have more control because that, you know, that's a whole other conversation as well. So, you know, that's why I don't really have a good answer because I can't think of a system that doesn't have a pretty serious cost. Yeah. <laughs> you know absolutely. what I mean? Yeah. I wonder too, um, with, with mainstream media, newspapers and TV stations, you know, you have who gets hired. You have all of these other systems at play in terms of race in particular, but social media is a bit more democratized. Mm-hmm. Anybody can can get involved in a conversation and anything can go viral. And I wonder if there's there's any power in that in elevating cases that don't always get attention. I, I guess one thing I would I would ask us to think about, media has its has a hierarchy. You know, you have one station above another station above another station, or one, you know, the Sean Hannity show is the leading this or whatever, right? Um, social media has something similar, right? Like who has the most followers? Like 
I don't have social media accounts. Like, I think I'm reasonably interesting to talk to, but, like, not a lot of people are listening because I'm not, like, broadcasting to thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of people, right? So who, who has more voice mm -hmm. on social media? And, you know, that follows those same contours. So, like, you know, if it's wealthy white people on social media that have the most followers, then what they call attention to is what's what we're going to pay attention to. Now you're saying like, okay, what about these, you know, social media is also allowing these counter stories about missing people of color, those cases that don't receive attention. But, you know, how many followers do those folks have versus the people that are pushing for van images of Gabby and Brian? Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, I think like um, our culture has a certain structure and hierarchy and that's reflected in all forms of media. Now, is it purely reflected? I don't know. Like, I think social media is more democratic, right? Because it's not just how many followers you have that determines whether your story elevates, right? It's also how interesting the story is. It's also, uh, does someone else famous pick it up? But if no one famous or no one with a lot of followers picks it up, right? And now we wanna think about those influencers at the top. Who are they? What's, what's their profile? Like the people you really are trying to get to pick up your story, the ones that could amplify what you're saying what does that array of people look right. like? And they're benefiting. So, you know, if you're that white woman on Instagram, you know, you're the one getting more followers because of this. And so, yeah, so you, you know, it's not just that like, we don't wanna just think of this as like some altruistic, like public search for a pure and innocent girl, which to, to some extent it is. It's also profiteering on the parts of some of these people. And, and there was an article, I think today or yesterday, that I read that basically it was quoting one of these influencers saying like, um, yeah, I started paying, I started posting all this Gabby Petito stuff and then like my followers blew up and like I'm getting all this attention and so like I'm basically spending even more of my life doing this. So kind of building off of that actually, that's a nice segue. Um, do you have a sense of why more existentially humans are just really drawn to true crime and why it's having this huge, huge moment and kind of always has captured our attention? Yeah, it's always captured our attention um, and in, in part because it's somewhat rare, right? It's unusual and so you can imagine, so it's, it's a number of things we talked about already. One is we're just interested in the unusual, right? And so, you know, we think about the word, the phrase true crime and what it means. It doesn't mean like, jaywalking <laughs> you know it's not like it's not like we here's a two-hour special of people jaywalking in berkeley you know what i mean and it's like that is that technically is true crime right but like you know among the like street crimes homicide is the rarest it's like very difficult to do that and it doesn't happen that much and the and the punishment is severe um, and so, you know, all this true crime, it's, it's true technically, but it's also biased in the same way it's picking and choosing, right? Robert Durst or Adnan Syed or, or whatever, right? Um, these really interesting cases that are also highly unusual because the person is very wealthy and famous because, um, like in the case of Serial, it, I mean, Serial's a little different because it was like they really, you know, it was like this long form investigation of this relatively unknown case, but you look what happened with that. That led to an army of sleuthing around the Adnan Syed case. You know, when the Robert Durst thing came out, you were probably talking about it, like everyone's talking about it. It's on social media, it's interacting with these other things, right? And so you start, like I started to feel, I watched it because I was like, I feel kind of left out, everyone watched it. But like, you know, the more stuff you know, the more you can relate to others. And like, you know, if five people are talking about Robert Durst, you jump in there. You know, and then you feel part of that, right? And again, it's we're 
what counts as true crime are the more unusual ones. Um, so there's that part of it. And then again, right back to the beginning, the roles are so clear, right? There are innocent victims, there are predatory villains, and then there are a bunch of uh, job openings for heroes, basically, right? We're hiring. You know, that that's part of it. And um, I think there is some research that shows that um, kind of the further away you are from that horror, the more you kind of obsess over it. Like, for example, the most violent, kind of brutal metal music comes from like the most peaceful countries. So if you ever listen to like metal music from like Norway or Sweden, like it's really brutal and violent and satanic and rough. And like the, ar the cultural argument is made is like, yeah, because it's all fantasy to them because they don't actually experience these things and so they're allowed to explore it as fantasy, right? Whereas if you live in a place with um, like, I don't know, like if you think of um, uh, rap music that comes from low income, high violence communities, they don't rap about violence in a fantastical way. They tend to rap about it in a very, I mean, embellished, but realistic way, right? Because it's real, because they've, you know, they've either experienced it or they're pretending to experience it. You know, I think it's also about as our cult, like, like our violence rates are low. Our crime rate's been dropping for 20-something years, right? And so, especially for the middle and upper middle class, there's almost no exposure to violent crime in real life. There's exposure to your typical violent crime, simple assault, things like that, right? So crime is not real in your life. It's a story. It's, it's a series of stories that are told to you. And what do you like about stories? You like good stories. You don't like boring stories. Right? So if crime is a story, is a fiction in your life, you want it to be entertaining. It is entertainment. If crime is not a fiction in your life, if crime is real, like you're, you're probably quite a bit less interested in reading tales of crime and true crime, right? I mean, that's generalizing, but the research bears that out as well. Is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you've thought of or that's come to mind that you want to share? Um, I guess just my final thought would be just, you know, that, you know, the challenge that we're left with is how do we deliver more equalized weight to cases, right, that don't fit these, like, clean cultural narratives or, or don't have the characteristics that make them popular? And, um, and, and it's kind of something I, I work on in, my, in all aspects of my work in life, which is to humanize people and to make that uh, young missing black man the same level of human as Gabby Petito to show that his family is suffering to show that, you know, whatever happened to him is an equal tragedy to this other person. And it's not like about comparing, but it's just about, you know, delivering justice as equally as possible. We don't do that very well in this country. And like, this is just another aspect of that. And um, I think you know, the kind of root change that needs to happen, and I don't know how to make this happen even though I'm trying, is to develop sympathy for those who are different from you, who don't have your characteristics, you know, who might live far away. Um, you know, I think there are smarter people that can work on that project than me. Um, but I think that that's the cultural challenge that sits underneath a lot of the kind of um, the, the, the issues we've been talking about today. To learn more about the intersections of crime and media, visit our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearingen arranged our theme. I'm Alyssa Hurst, Radio Ed's executive producer and today's host. This is Radio Ed. <laughs>